Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. They nominated Trainwreck, Amy Schumer's film, for, for Best Comedy of the Year. And yeah, it made a lot of money and it got talked about a lot. But I, I reviewed that on this, this show and I, I told you how. I really didn't think Trainwreck was very good. I didn't think it was particularly original. This movie was much more funny and much more original. I would have loved to have seen this get nominated for Best Picture in the comedy category at the Golden Globes. <laughs> Stream Police Podcast is brought to you by OverdueReview.com. Looking for a Netflix recommendation that's worth two hours of your time? Or a forgotten album that's worth picking up on iTunes? OverdueReview.com is your destination for unbiased, unpretentious, thoughtful opinions on movies, TV, and music from every era. OverdueReview.com. Better late. Welcome, friends, to the Stream Police Podcast and what will be ultimately our last edition of the year of our Lord, 2015, our first year on the air here. I can't believe it. we're coming up on our one-year anniversary, actually, in just a few short months. If you go over to our website, OverdueReview.com, you can see uh, Andy Sedlak, our music director, who we'll be hearing uh, from in just a little bit, actually our music editor, uh, who we'll be hearing from in just a little bit. Uh, about his uh, his favorite tunes of the past year of 2015, and uh, I will be doing my uh, obligatory top 10 list in just a little bit. I, I'm not I don't have mine done yet because I haven't seen all the the movies that I want to, uh, you know that, that I'm thinking will probably be included here. So my list will probably be coming sometime more like in February, and I know that'll seem a little old, but. The website is called Overdue Review, so if I'm not two months behind on my best of 2015 list, then it's just we're not living up to our name. Uh, hello, friends. I'm Clint Davis, the uh, movies and television editor at OverdueReview.com, and welcome to our bi-weekly show, the Stream Police Podcast. We tell you what uh, what's worth it out there, what's worth watching, what's worth listening to in the streaming multiverse uh, here on this program. And uh, if you haven't caught up on all the old episodes, you might think that, hey, they're ancient at this point. They're not. All the stuff we're talking about is still out there in the ether, still streaming. So uh, go check it out and, and hear what I had to say about certain movies, TV shows, and uh, what our friend Mr. Sedlak had to say about uh, all, all the latest records. So uh, and music news as well. Let me get things started as I always do here in my tiny uh, my tiny closet where I can't even stretch both my elbows out in here, only one at a time. Uh, let me light up my Stogie of the week. This week I'm smoking an acid by Drew Estate. If you know anything about me, and if you've listened to the show, it's my it's my favorite stogie of all. So I know I love it. Let me light it up. And no review needed. It's like smoking the Godfather too, man. It's like smoking either of the Godfathers. All right, no review needed. Perfect stuff. Acid by Drew Estate. Welcome into the show. Let me go ahead and get things started with an obvious note by saying, no, I have not seen Star Wars yet. All right? Haven't seen it yet. I didn't buy my tickets nine months early. I've got a lot of other movies to see. I will be seeing Star Wars, as as with everybody and their brother, but I have not seen it yet. I hope to God that it can knock off Avatar as the highest grossing movie of all time. I don't know that it will. Avatar kind of juked the numbers because everything was it had to be in 3D everywhere, thanks Jim Cameron. And it also had that James Cameron magic where he's like the only guy in the world who can set the record for the number one highest grossing film ever. Not even Steven Spielberg can do that. But I hope it can knock Avatar off because Avatar does not deserve to be number one all time. It'd be much better, I think, for Hollywood if Star Wars, a Star Wars film, ended up as the number one highest grossing movie of all time. 
the reason that I know Star Wars is going to be good isn't because the uh, like early press about it has been so glowing. It's because Disney, as a studio, has better quality control than maybe any other studio in movie history. I spoke to a guy once. Just to make a comparison here, I spoke to a guy once who was the head brewmaster at like one of the big craft breweries in Florida that distributes beer all over the place. But they're a big they're a craft brewery all the way in Florida. He told me on the phone, I'm talking to him about his beer, I'm talking to him about, you know, why people are so against Anheuser-Busch and, and Miller Coors and all that. And he told me that the thing that most people don't realize about Anheuser-Busch and Miller when they rip them, is that the quality control that those companies have is unmatched. Like, it's unbelievable. Like, he had to stand in awe of the quality control. He's like, if you drink a Budweiser today, or you drank one 10 years ago, or you drink one in 15 years from now, it will taste exactly the same as the one you had 15 years ago. It'll taste exactly the same. Not one iota different. And he, there was something in him as a brewmaster that was just in awe of that, because they have it down literally to a science. And the quality control is so great. And that's what I think of when I think of Disney and them taking over Star Wars. These movies, the same reason why the Marvel movies have been so consistently beloved, consistently good, they've done well with audiences, is because in some ways they're all the same movie. And they're loaded with fan service. And the new Star Wars movie is definitely going to be loaded with fan service. Because that's one thing George Lucas did not do in the old uh, in the Star Wars prequels I should say he basically went out of his way to not do any fan service he was pretty much flipping the middle finger to all the big fans and JJ J. Abrams is is much, he's he's a little bit smarter than that after seeing the backlash of those movies and he's 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 loaded this thing up with fan service I think so will it pass avatar I don't know I hope it does but uh yeah I, I just I don't think any of these six Star Wars films that Disney makes in the next 6 years I don't think a single one of them will be bad. They'll, they'll all be a consistent level of good, if not great, films. It's just what Disney does. All right, let's move on. I'm going to talk a, a lot about uh, movies coming up in the second half of the show after Andy talks about uh, some tunes. But first, I want to start on the small tube. Last week, I did not talk about television at all. I spent the entire show talking about movies because it is holiday movie season. But I want to start here by talking about two TV shows that I just finished since the last time we spoke, friends. First one, available right now on Netflix and only on Netflix. It is Marvel's Jessica Jones. This was created by Melissa Rosenberg, who is a writer uh, that actually won a Peabody Award for her work on Dexter. She uh, used to write for Ally McBeal and some other series, and she wrote the I think she wrote all the Twilight series movies. I'm not sure. I know she wrote like the first one in New Moon, I think. Uh, but she's she's done a lot. Her career has been varied. Uh, but Melissa Rosenberg created this series based on Marvel's character, Jessica Jones, um, the comic book character. And this uh, show stars Kristen Ritter, Rachel Taylor, and Carrie Ann Moss of The Matrix fame. Um, and, and this show, you may have watched it as well. I, I got to tell you, I, I really enjoyed the run of Jessica Jones. I wouldn't count it among my favorite series of all time or anything. It didn't hit me like a, a speeding train or anything like that, but I really did enjoy watching the episodes. I thought it was a, a perfect length for this story. I liked the character. Um, I liked the edge that it had to it. This is Netflix's second crack at doing a Marvel Universe property. Their first one was in Daredevil, and this is set in the same neighborhood as that show is, but there's no mention of Matt Murdock or the Daredevil uh, universe in this uh, in this show that I know of. I didn't watch Daredevil yet. It's been on my list for a while, but I just didn't get around to it. So that's ne- it's going to be on my list next, I believe. But anyways, it takes place in the same neighborhood, Hell's Kitchen uh, in New York. Uh, Melissa Rosenberg, she's been working on a Jessica Jones adaptation apparently for half a decade before it even landed at Netflix. She shopped it around to other networks, ABC included. It finally landed at Netflix. And the care that she has for its lead character, I feel like, is evident in this series. It's clear that she did spend five years uh, focusing on trying to write a series for this character because I feel like she really gets down deep into what makes Jessica Jones the kind of person that she is, what makes her into a character we should care about um, in this world that is loaded with superheroes. Let me just describe Jessica Jones for you a little bit. She is working as a private detective in New York. She lives in this shitty apartment that doubles as her office. She wears shitty clothes, like kind of like ratty jeans, a leather jacket all the time that kind of looks cartoonish by the end of the series because it is she she's like wearing the same outfit every episode which is one of my uh criticisms of this show that kind of came off as goofy to me but anyway she's got this really bad attitude 
and she's a, a serious alcoholic, hard drinker. But she's got superpowers also. She is able to. She has super strength. She's got um, uh, super agility. She can't fly, but she can jump like the, basically the entire height of a building and jump off buildings and land safely without hurting herself. And she can. There's just tons of things that she can do physically that no humans, no mortals, uh, could do. I should say. But she doesn't like to use her powers for good so much um, because things didn't go well when she did try to use them as a hero, which we find out in the series. Um, Kristen Ritter, who you probably know from Breaking Bad, she played um, she played Jesse's girlfriend um, in the uh, was it the second season of the series. It was a character that I liked a lot in that show. Probably my favorite female character of that entire series. Um, she was the one. She ended up overdosing uh, on drugs. Uh, that's the, probably how you best remember Kristen Ritter. She also used to be on Gilmore Girls and some other things. Uh, I think she was on uh, Don't Trust to Be in Apartment Twenty Three on ABC as well. But she embodies this character really well. She looks like what you would imagine this character looks like if you know the books at all. And she plays it well. She's especially got the short temperament and like the sarcastic attitude down, um, really, really down pat. The entire cast, though, I really like. This is a good ensemble. They did a nice job casting all these roles. Carrie Ann Moss, especially, I liked. She basically looks the same as she did in The Matrix, which is insane. She still, I think she looks better than she did in The Matrix. She's sexy in this show and just kind of a badass as a manipulative, high-powered lawyer who's really just not a good person, but she is a confidant of Jessica Jones's. Um, and also, uh, I mentioned uh, Rachel Taylor. Taylor's somebody I did not know before. She plays Jones' celebrity best friend, and I feel like the two of these together, Jessica Jones and, and, and Patsy, who's the, this other character, this pair is like one of my favorite female duos that I've seen on TV in a long time. Their bond isn't familial. They're not blood-related, so it doesn't feel forced that they like have to be friends because, well, they're family. But they always have each other's backs. But but they don't always see eye to eye, which also makes their dynamic pretty interesting. And they've taken different paths in their in their lives. And I just I really liked that relationship. It's a great buddy relationship that I really enjoyed a lot in this show. And I liked the two scenes. Uh, every scene that those two actors spend together on this show, I thought really worked well. And there are a lot of scenes that those two characters spend together in this show. I feel like Jessica Jones is an interesting lead character and especially an interesting Marvel series uh, lead character because of the edginess that she's written with and that the show is written with. There's more graphic sex, language, and weightier issues and subject matter than I feel like are presented in any of the Marvel films or TV series that I've ever seen uh, in Jessica Jones. I mean, there's there's a lot of hard-hitting stuff hitting this show. And as I said, sex, language, um, the violence is a little bit more uh, a little bit more gritty, a little bit more realistic, and that's something you do not see in Joss Whedon's Avenger, Avengers movies or um, in, in any of the other Marvel films especially. We get a little bit closer to it. The, per, the character I would most compare her with is Tony Stark, just in her attitude. She doesn't have the wealth of Tony Stark. She doesn't have the status. She doesn't have the free time that he has. But she's got all the, the kind of attitude that Tony Stark has, and and she he's a womanizer. She sleeps with a lot of different men, and she drinks hard, and she's just got a bad attitude, basically. So, I feel like those characters are kind of kinsmen, and they would get along well. Uh, we see Jones as a serious alcoholic, but drinking is not glamorized on this show, which I feel like is done well. We also see and understand what drove her to the bottle, which is very important. She's not just a drinker, and that's part of her character, makes her a badass. We understand why she does it, why she leans on this crutch. Um, a scene that I'm going to play for you now comes from the pilot episode. This scene really stuck out with, out to me in summing up what this show is all about and what makes it different than other Marvel properties right in the first episode. We hear Jessica and another one of the main characters inching closer and closer to talking about and having sex with every line of dialogue as they talk about really some personal things of what makes them them. You a PI? I'm just trying to make a living. You know, booze costs money. Usually. It's a better ways to hustle digging people's business. It's the only thing I'm good at. How good? A natural. Yeah? So what have you detected? Well, I can tell by the residue on this bar that four years ago a man named Horace had buffalo wings. His name was Melvin. 
I stand in dark alleys and wait to take pictures of people boning. Except you've been watching me like a hawk since you walked in. Force of habit. Oh, it's your way of flirting. I don't flirt. But you do. Not for sport. It's got purpose. Like getting customers to drink more, tip more. But you also like women. Temporarily, at least. And they like you. See, now that sounded like flirting to me. Again, I don't flirt. I just say what I want. And what do you want? And there are plenty of exchanges and scenes like that in Jessica Jones. It's not just like a big sex show. Like, it's not just her going around and screwing whoever uh, all the time. Um, it's not. There's not a ton of sex in this show, but... I feel like that's a good scene in summing up really what makes this show different. What really, though, made Jessica Jones on Netflix stick out to me in its first season is the strength of its villain. I've always felt like the villains, I've seen all the Marvel movies, and I feel like the villains in the Marvel movies are weak, by and large. There are a couple good ones. I felt like the Winter Soldier was a very good villain in the Captain America film, and Loki is a very good villain in uh, in the Avengers uh, movies. But... Other than that, the villains in those movies mostly are, are pretty vanilla and pretty generic. But the villain in this show is downright terrifying. Uh, it's a guy named Kilgrave, who's played by David Tennant, who was Doctor Who and also from the show Broadchurch, British uh, television show. He, this guy's a terrifying adversary. Jessica, her powers, as I said, she's got super strength and agility. But Kilgrave's weapon is to control anyone's mind. He can control anyone's mind on the street simply by making suggestions to them. He just tells them to do something, and they do it without question. They get this glazed-over look on their face, and they go right to it. Um, you know, just they will not be stopped at all if he tells them to do something. If he tells a character to hang themselves, they do it immediately. That's something that he does in this show. If he tells someone to rip their own heart out, they'll do it immediately, which is something else he does on this show. If he tells somebody to go across the street and face a wall and stand there forever, they will stand there and not be moved until the powers wear off, which is usually at least a full day after he's given them an order. So this person's going to stand there for 24 hours facing a wall, not moving to go to the bathroom to eat or do anything. Um, just from a suggestion from this guy, uh, Kilgrave, this villain. I-, I loved the villain. I thought it was, as I said, the best part uh, of this first season of the show and really set it up uh, as as a strong introductory season. But the character of Jessica Jones is interesting. She's layered. I feel like there's a lot of legs on this character, and I would love to see uh, where this show is going to go. I-, I don't think she would match up so well in like an Avengers movie or in, you know, one of the other more like an Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. or something. I just don't think she would jibe with that. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see what they do with Daredevil and with her in trying to bring these two worlds together because I think they both do have kind of that dark tone that you don't see in many of the uh, Disney Marvel properties. So bravo to Netflix on another uh, on another series here and taking a, a Marvel property and, and making it their own. I, I, I enjoyed it. I thought Jessica Jones was, uh, was a fun watch and a good 13 episodes. Uh, and it is available on Netflix right now if you're a subscriber. Another television show that just wrapped up here. Uh, I literally just watched the season finale this week. Uh, Fargo, season two on FX. If you've listened to this uh, show religiously, you've heard me rave on and on about Fargo. Uh, The first season was one of my favorite opening seasons of any TV series ever. It was my favorite show of 2014. And season two, I talked about it a few weeks ago after it had just started, and I was saying how much I was enjoying it so far. It just wrapped up, and uh, it was, again, a very strong season. No sophomore slump for Fargo. This show is created by Noah Hawley, and it starred uh, in this season Patrick Wilson, Kirsten Dunst, uh, Jeffrey Donovan, and Ted Danson who all did great work here. Overall, I don't think that season two of Fargo was as addicting or as exciting as season one was. Season one really had both of those things down, but this season was much deeper in terms of character development and in expanding the show's fictional world and uh, possibly was a little more believable than season one was. But uh, like I said, I don't think it was quite, I I may rank it a little lower than season one, but again, I'm comparing it to perfection. So that's not an insult to this season at all. This was a great season of TV, and it was so interesting and so original. Again, absolutely every cast member in this season pulled their weight 
And I was especially impressed, though, with Kirsten Dunst because I've never really liked her in anything. I, I, I have written before on the website about how, about how almost everything she's – I wrote like a comparison with uh, Sofia Coppola and how – if you look at Sofia Coppola's films, the ones that have Kirsten Dunst in them, and she's in like three of her six movies, the three out of six that she's in, like all suck. But then the other three that she's not in are basically like masterpiece films. So she basically, I've kind of compared her as like the anti King Midas. Like she's just, I never thought she was very good, but she was very good in this season of Fargo. And uh, I could not have seen that casting really playing out as well as it did here. Uh, she plays a woman who's desperate. For something more out of life and to be taken seriously in the world. She's uh, a hairdresser who doesn't just want to be this uh, woman who works as a beautician and and helps support a husband and, and living in this small town in Minnesota. She wants to be taken seriously, but simply makes one poor decision after another, leading her and her husband down a dangerous path that runs head-on with an organized crime family in South Dakota, and that's really what happens in this season. Uh, And her husband is so devoted to her, played by Jesse Plemons, who's had a very busy year. He was in uh, he was in Black Mass, which I reviewed a few episodes ago. He was on this show. He was in Bridge of Spies, which I'm going to talk about later. Busy year for him, and he was very good in all three of them. Uh, Patrick Wilson was also outstanding. Another guy that I didn't love before this. I mean, I, I, I liked him in Watchmen fine, but I didn't. I wasn't crazy about him in Watchmen, but he was great here. He was outstanding as a uh, by-the-books cop, really, is what he plays. And, and Ted Danson plays his father-in-law, another by-the-books cop type. The pair of them essentially play like these 1950s-style hero characters who you have no doubt are going to save the day, ride in, save the day. They never make a wrong turn in saving the day. Um, and their moral fiber is so thick that it puts everybody else to shame in the world. Uh, but Wilson gives a monologue in the final episode as he's driving down the road, tears welling up a little bit in his eyes. He's driving down the road. Kirsten Dunst is uh, is listening to this monologue. He's talking about his final days in Vietnam. Uh, he's a veteran on the show. And he's, he's driving down the road, as I said, and welling up a little bit. And it was just it struck me as the best scene that I've ever seen Patrick Wilson do. In his career, it was just outstanding work from him and the entire cast. I also I have to give a shout out to Jeffrey Donovan. I I never watched the show Burn Notice, but I'm going to watch that series now just because of how much I loved him in this season of Fargo. I thought he was fantastic. He was I could not take my eyes off him. He was my favorite new character of the season. He played the oldest son, uh, Dodd Gerhardt of this uh, this mob family that I was talking about before, and he's such a nasty misogynistic thug who feels entitled to his family's throne after his father has a stroke in the first episode. This guy was perfect in playing an intimidating part, reminiscent a little bit of Billy Bob Thornton in season one. Um, Not quite that intimidating, but he was pretty intimidating. At least he wanted to be. And I also have to give credit to Gene Smart. She played his mother in this in this season. I felt like she was underused, which was one of my only complaints with the season. I wish they would have used Gene Smart a little bit more. And also let me give a big shout-out to uh, Kristen Milioti, who is a Broadway veteran who I hope will be getting some more screen roles after her performance in this season of Fargo. She played Patrick Wilson's cancer-stricken wife and just did great work all the way through. And when I tell you she's playing a, a part uh, of a character who's who's stricken with terminal cancer, it's not the performance that you're thinking it probably is, not the one you've seen before. Um, and, and there is no feeling bad for her in this season. It's just a strong performance, a strong character, and I really liked her a lot. I, 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 In fact, I loved her in this season. So big shout-out to Kristen Milioti. Uh, th- this season was much sweeter overall than the first season of Fargo, if you watched it, and much, much more about the power of family than last season was. One powerful family in this season deceives each other and ultimately frays apart because of their own self-driven motives that pull them in a bunch of different directions. While another family in the series uses their bond to survive. They pull each other through tough situations together just by knowing that each other that they have each other's backs, dismissing the notion that anything could be more important than the bond of family. I, that was the message that really came through in Season 2 of Fargo. Bravo to Noah Hawley. I'm disappointed that Season 3 won't come out until 2017, but I know, again, the quality is going to be outstanding because... Uh, he followed up what I felt like was an impossible act to follow in season one and gave us even more things to be intrigued about uh, in season two. You got to understand, 
We're just trying to... No, me, I'm just trying to protect my family. There was a cleaver in the man's head, son, which Noreen said was you. And I can't stop thinking about that book. Noreen's book. It's like stuck in what? my head. What book? It's about this guy who... Every day he, he pushes this rock up this hill like a boulder. And then every night it just rolls back down. But he doesn't stop. You know, he just, he keeps going. And he wakes up every day and he starts pushing. By which I, I, I guess I'm, I'm saying it doesn't matter what they throw at me. I'm going to take care of what's mine. These boys aren't going to rest until you're dead, son. Fargo Season 2 is currently uh, streaming on uh, Hulu, I believe, if you want to check that. Or Season 1 actually is on Hulu right now. Season 2, I don't believe is on Hulu yet, but I think it will be, given that Season 1 is as well. It is on the FX Now app, if you have that. All right, I'm going to take a break, pass things over to uh, my partner in crime, Andy Sedlak, our music editor at OverdueReview.com. Let's hear what he's got on the table. Take it away, Andy. My name is Andy Sedlak. I am the music editor over at OverdueReview.com. And let me just say the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame 2016 inductees have been announced. three for five with my predictions this year. I thought for sure the cars would be in, but the actual inductees were Steve Miller, NWA, Chicago, Deep Purple, and Cheap Trick. I don't have a problem with any of those artists keep in mind that Chic was nominated this year on the day their induction was announced Cheap Trick announced that they had signed with Big Machine Records that is the label that has Taylor Swift and Tim McGraw as clients now Cheap Trick has a new album coming out next year it'll be called Bang Zoom Crazy Hello Great title. Steven Tyler also actually, uh, his solo record will be released through Big Machine. It's a huge label. It is indeed a big machine. We'll see if Cheap Trick uh, have a little more twang this time out or a little more twang than perhaps what they're known for but their producer will be a guy named julian raymond they have worked with him in the past uh in the few years since they've worked with him raymond has won a grammy he produced glenn campbell's i'll be me i'll be anxious to see what comes on the heels of their induction announcement in the past few days I've seen videos of them jamming with Brad Paisley. Now, I think those videos are old, but my point is the foundation is there. I don't know if you're going to see a country cheap trick record. It's, it's premature. It's too early to say that. But, but again, the signs, the indicators are there. And quite frankly, I think their style and their songwriting would lend itself to country music a little bit. I think there's a lot going on right now in country that uh, has rock influences, 80s rock influences. Cheap Trick had hits in the 80s. It could be a neat marriage. It really could. And I'd like to see them, quite frankly, on a bill with some of the acts that they have inspired. It's not unrealistic to think that this time around, the budget for their album will be bigger. They might have more time to put something together. I'm only speculating. But it's nice to see working-class bands like that get the nod. All of a sudden now, promoters can put Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee at the top of their concert posters and on their promotions online. They'll charge you a little more in order to see them. They'll generate more money. But aside from the financial aspect of this thing, it genuinely seems like this is something that means a lot to a lot of artists. When asked about how he felt, about N.W.A. being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Ice Cube said it was hard for him to put into words. 
Now, this is a man who's never had much of an issue with finding words. Now, who do you love to hate? Because I talk shit and down the eight. Well, because I don't break. You're begging. I fall off. The cross door might as well put them balls on. You're like accepted by history when you are inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's why so many people are upset because voters for the Hall of Fame tend to be oddly selective. There's a group of about 800 people who decide this, by the way. Uh, It's made up of artists, historians, journalists, uh, lifers in the music industry. What seems strange is how some acts can come so close one year And then they're not mentioned the next. One of my favorite examples, and if you listen to the show, you've heard it before. One of my favorite examples is the Jay Giles Band. They were finalists to be inducted in the Hall of Fame in 2011. They didn't make it. And they haven't sniffed it since. They weren't even nominated this year. After coming so close in 2011, (laughs) I mean, the poor guys in the Jay Giles Band still waiting. And now that we're talking about this, I don't care what anybody says. Jimmy Buffett should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Nine platinum albums. Margaritaville, one of the Recording Industry Association of America's Songs of the Century. And he's toured every summer since Abraham Lincoln was president. He's never even been nominated, to my knowledge. And he would have been eligible for induction in 1995. Put him in. I love the Hall of Fame, though. I try to go up once a year. There's so much to look through. It's all very well done. It's got a great feel. Museum and rock music. Those two things, those two entities on the surface, on paper, don't seem to mesh. But there are a number of of just stunning things to look at. Like Jimi Hendrix's artwork is a boy. Or Elvis's Cadillac, one of his Cadillacs. It's packed to the gills with this stuff. Original handwritten lyrics. From Bruce Springsteen, Hungry Heart. That's like looking at one of the stone slabs of the Ten Commandments. While I deeply respect the Hall of Fame, I tend to have an issue um, with the Grammys. That's such a hip stance, I know. But, but man, you know, I, I think they blow it about 70% of the time. I always like to say I'd rather win a cheeseburger than a Grammy. And it sounds like I'm hating. And I get that. It, it, it's, it does. But I just have a problem with the Grammys. I won't drone on and on. But the nominees this year were announced. Maybe you've had time to look at them Maybe you've had time to mull them over. Maybe you don't care. If not, you wouldn't be alone. But what I want to know is this. Taylor Swift's 1989 and Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly are both up for Album of the Year. How do you even begin to compare those two? I suppose by any artistic standard, Lamar's album would have to be the winner, but by any commercial standard, you'd have to go with Swift. You could also, by the way, make a case for Swift's artistic growth or Lamar's crossover appeal. My point is, you can submit your choice however you want. It'll be interesting. It'll light up like a giant arrow sign pointing to what's truly valued in 2015, an unbelievable artistic achievement from Kendrick Lamar. Or drop dead sales numbers from Taylor Swift. Are you fully rewarding the art or the commercial appeal? The overdue army can go ahead and take bets on this one. You won't win anything if you get it right. Hell, it's a coin flip for Christ's sake. Oh, and by the way, there were other nominees in this category. All of them very, very good dark horse candidates. The Alabama Shakes, Sound and Color, Chris Stapleton's Traveler, and The Weeknd's Beauty Before the Madness. These are all critical darlings, every one of them. The Weeknd is dominating year-end best-of lists from virtually every major music publication. Chris Stapleton dominated the CMAs, and the Alabama Shakes just dominate, period. That's a great band. It's stayed together, man. They've evolved. They've been consistent. They're due for mainstream recognition as much as anybody. So, yeah, it's actually, now they look at it, it's actually a tight year. 
So, guys, this will be, uh, let's see, it'll be the last podcast before Christmas. So I'm going to give you, um, as part of our evolving uh, stream police playlist, I give you five songs uh, every uh, every time out here. By now you've got, man, I don't know how many dozens of songs that we've got on this playlist now. It, it should be diverse. Um, it should be colorful. Uh, it should be um, everything that you would want in a playlist. Uh, but for this week, I'm going to give you five of my favorite Christmas songs. It is that season after all. Number five is Tom Petty, Christmas all over again. Everybody's singing. All the bells are ringing out and it's Christmas all over again. Number four, Jimmy Buffett. Ho, 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 and a bottle of rum. Ho, 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 and a bottle of rum. Santa's run off to the Caribbean. He thinks about cold drinks and fun in the sun. Ho, 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 and a bottle of rum. We're not going super traditional. We're just not. Uh, Let's see. Number three, Bob Seger's Little Drummer Boy. This is as soulful as Christmas music ever got. And this next song, is it really a Christmas song? No, uh, but it sort of takes place at Christmas time and in a way looks at the underbelly of the holiday season. This is called Christmas Card from a Hooker in Minneapolis. It is by Mr. Tom Waits. Charlie, I'm pregnant, living on Ninth Street. Above a dirty bookstore Of Euclid Avenue I stopped taking dope I quit drinking whiskey My old man plays the trombone Works out at the track You listen to that whole song, it's heartbreaking. The whole thing written uh, as a Christmas card from this woman to the guy. Character's name is Charlie. And finally, quite simply, this is the greatest Christmas song ever recorded. It's Christmas, Baby, Please Come Home by the one and only Darlene Love. Take a listen. Thanks so much. It's been a phenomenal year with you. Take care, all right? We'll see you in 2016. And I'll leave you with the words of the great Kinky Friedman. A genius is somebody who's ahead of their time and behind on their rent. Later. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. All right, thank you, Andy. Let me go ahead and light this stogie back up here. Oh, it's even better. Especially when you got that Guy Ritchie poker scene uh, uh, tune plan there. I'll let that ride for a minute. All right, let's go ahead and get into uh, some stuff on the big screen. I got a, I've got one movie to talk about, actually two movies to talk about that are in theaters and a couple more to talk about that are available on home video and also Netflix right now. First off, Bridge of Spies, which is right now in theaters. It's been in theaters for a little while. It was directed by the great Steven Spielberg, and it was written by, speaking of Fargo, Joel and Ethan Cohen, as well as Matt Charman, who is basically a newcoming uh, screenwriter. He hasn't done much. It stars Tom Hanks and Mark Rylance, two heavyweight, heavyweight with a capital H, actors. Bridge of Spies was a tight, well-made political film and my the, the thing I was most impressed about it, the timing that it came out with, is that its message today, I feel like, rings louder than at perhaps any point in American history since the Cold War. And that's amazing. Amazing timing and forethought to bring this film out right now. Um, with everything that we've got going on with the marginalization of uh, people who practice the Islamic faith in this country, this movie might as well have been speaking to them, but it was actually talking um, about the uh, Red Scare back in the 1950s. Uh, Tom Hanks plays a patriotic lawyer who is tasked with defending a suspected Soviet spy played by Mark Rylance in a publicized court case in 1957 New York. This is based on a true story. It all supposedly happened. But this is not a courtroom movie at all. I thought it was a courtroom movie going in. I just want to tell you now, it's not a courtroom movie. We only spend about five minutes in court through the entire film. The real meat of this story takes place in Soviet Germany. When Hanks' character visits on behalf of the U.S. government to negotiate a trade of the Soviet spy for a captured American spy who's been taken beyond uh, the Soviet border. So it's it's about basically a swap and it's about negotiations and it's about uh, diplomacy. Um, and, and that is what really makes this movie so different because it's not about let's go in and let's crack some skulls and stuff. Uh, Hanks is basically out of his league trying to go in and do this negotiation. He's had no experience doing this kind of thing, but he's the perfect outsider to go in and pull it off. And he's got a kind heart. He believes in the right things. And he believes in, uh, you know, what America is all about. And he points to the Constitution as this great shining light, which we should all follow. And that sounds hokey as hell. But the movie is really, it's not cheesy. It does not beat you over the head with that. It actually makes you proud uh, to, to live in this country, really. I mean, and again, that sounds hokey, but it's, it's not at all. That's one of the things that Bridge of Spies does so well. The movie really looked and felt a lot to me like... The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, which is one of my favorite books. And the movie and the storyline just seemed a lot like what this was about. And that's a good movie, basically, to copy. If you're going to copy something, that's an old movie. So a lot of people now probably haven't seen that. But uh, Bridge of Spies reminded me a lot of that. But Hanks is not a badass character. He's he's a smart guy. Uh, but like I said, he's not cracking heads and he's not doing any espionage of his own. The best scenes, though, of Bridge of Spies come between Hanks and Mark Rylance, who basically put on an acting clinic and and, and what I would call an underacting clinic. There is no overacting of any kind in this film, even though Tom Hanks has been known to overact a time or two in his career. He's very toned down in this movie, and it works so well. Rylance plays the Soviet spy with such a calm grace. Uh, that it is evident this guy is a theater veteran, even though you've never seen him on screen, probably, unless you watch PBS's Wolf Hall. Uh, he's he's a veteran. I mean, he's a he's an Olivier Award-winning 
theater veteran, and it shows definitely in this performance. He's He's got masterful control over the character that he's playing. These two actors, though, are fantastic to watch together. Um, the connections, though, as I was saying to Muslims today in America are amazing because what what the what Hanks's character is so pissed off about is that America basically hangs this guy out to dry even though he's a spy we see in the first scenes of the movie that he is a spy it's not one of those things where did he do it or didn't he do it he is a spy we know that but Hanks respects the guile that this guy had and basically the fact that he's standing up for what he believed in and he also points to the constitution as hey you know what even though this guy's not an American and in fact he's our enemy we have to treat him the way that the Constitution guarantees all people in this country will be treated regardless of their crimes, regardless of what they're suspected of. We have to treat them with respect. We have to give them a fair shake in court. And no one gives this guy a fair shake but Hanks. Um, and, and it's the same same thing when you're talking about uh, people that you're talking about Islamophobia today. It's the same thing with the Soviet phobia that was happening um, in, uh, in in the 1950s. So I really felt like the timing could not have been better for the release of this movie. But unfortunately, most people who watch this film will probably not. The, the people that need to make that connection will not make that connection is the sad thing. But, it, you know, if a few people do, then Spielberg's done a great thing here. You know, Steven Spielberg, the last thing I'll say about Bridge of Spies is that Spielberg is perhaps the best director in American history. I mean, I'm not going out on a limb by saying that, and that is not hyperbole. He He's done it all. The range is outstanding, and the guy has had hit after hit. But he proves, again, the simplicity with which he's able to execute very important issues. He did it on Schindler's List masterfully, and he does it here. And that's my biggest compliment for Bridge of Spies is how elegantly it was done and how simply it drives across a story that is such a major thing in human history. Uh, Bridge of Spies was the best movie that Spielberg's done since 2005's Munich, which I absolutely loved. And this is a very different film from Munich, um, but that's been 10 years ago, and uh, this is this is the best work Spielberg has done since then. Lincoln was good, but this was better than Lincoln, I'm going to say right now. So uh, Bridge of Spies right now is in theaters. It's all about this man and what he represents. He's a threat to all of us, a traitor. Who's a traitor? The Rosenbergs were traitors. Who were they? That's your sister's They gave atomic secrets to the Russians. They were Americans. They betrayed their country. You can't accuse Abel of being a traitor. He's not an American. Listen to yourself. You're defending him already. I'm hungry. You're rehearsing it on me. You said you were just thinking about it. I am just thinking about it. It's very hard. Everyone deserves a defense. Every person matters. Jim, what do we deserve? Do you know how people will look at us? The family of a man trying to free a traitor? Another movie that I saw recently that I really liked that I hope gets a little bit of consideration for uh, the Academy Awards season was a movie called Mr. Holmes. And this was a little film. It's it's right now available to rent and own on home video. It's not streaming anywhere but, you know, the streaming rental services like Apple or Amazon if you want to pay for it. Uh, the director is Bill Condon, who did Dreamgirls, Kenzie, and a few other films. Screenplay written by Jeffrey Hatcher. He's a playwright, but uh, his most recent screenplay was The Duchess from 2008. The movie starred Ian McKellen and Laura Linney, two, again, two masters of their craft. Uh, this movie is a mystery and a drama, and it follows Sherlock Holmes in his twilight years. Ian McKellen plays Sherlock Holmes, uh, who is long since retired. Uh, Watson, Dr. Watson, the beloved character, has long since died. He is not in this film. He's just mentioned basically as a ghost. And Holmes has stopped taking on cases and has retired to his country home to write a true account in book form of his final unsolved case. And that's really what this movie is about. Holmes is a little bit of a broken man at this point, and Ian McKellen gets that point across beautifully. Uh, McKellen plays the, uh, the the elder Holmes, as I said, and he gives probably my favorite performance of Sherlock Holmes that I've ever seen on film. Uh, he made the character into more of a human being than we've typically seen him. And, you know, this is a this is a Sherlock Holmes that's developed a little bit of empathy after looking back on what he feels are some of the failures in his life. And he's an old man at this point. He knows he cannot go back and redo those things. Part of what makes the film so interesting, Mr. Holmes, is that it's, it's exploration of celebrity. Because in this movie, Sherlock Holmes is world famous 
for his detective work. Uh, books have been written about him by Watson. Movies have been made about him, which we see in one great scene. The old Sherlock goes and watches a film of one of his exploits, and he's laughing at all the things that he would never say that are brought up into the movie. That, that to me, was what was so fascinating about this, because it's about how you can let your public image be defined by what other people say about you rather than the actual things that you did um, and the things that you wore and what made you you. This depiction of Holmes, uh, the, the depiction of Holmes like in the books and the movies that everyone expects to meet in the film after seeing those movies and reading those books isn't much like the real man at all. And I just I thought that was a fascinating thing to include in a story about maybe the most beloved character in the history of uh, in the history of Eng- the English language. Really, I mean, Mr. Holmes, uh, Sherlock Holmes is he's been done and done to death and he will continue to be done uh, long after we are dead, friends. Uh, this film does include, it's not just like a drama, and it's not just a character study and a big bummer if I'm making it sound that way. It's got laughs, and it does include a mystery plot sprinkled throughout in flashbacks as Holmes remembers his final case. So we do get a mystery here to solve, um, and it's satisfyingly solved in the end. And we see the detective do his famous parlor trick even of telling a person's life story from taking a quick look at their clothes. So there are some of the the favorite things that you want to see in a Sherlock Holmes movie, but it's also different enough, I feel like, that it was worth making, and this was a worthy uh, film uh, to come out in the in the Sherlock Holmes uh, in, in the Sherlock Holmes canon, which is being done like crazy now between the Guy Ritchie movies with Robert Downey Jr. and the uh, BBC show with Benedict Cumberbatch, but Ian McKellen slayed them all. I loved his version of Sherlock Holmes, and I really like this movie. It was a very good little film. Mister Holmes, right now available to rent and own, and I I really recommend it if you want to. Uh, spend just a couple hours watching, uh, you know, a quick watch. And if you like Sherlock Holmes and you like mysteries, you know, give it a watch. It's it's a really good portrait of this character. You are very great detective. Thank you very much. My mother, she wonders if you have brought your famous hat. Oh, the dear stalker. That was an embellishment of the illustrator. I've never worn one. And a pipe? I prefer a cigar. I told Watson, if I ever write a story myself, it will be to correct the million misconceptions created by his imaginative license. Another film I watched recently that is now available on Netflix is Tangerine. Tangerine was directed by Sean S. Baker and written by Sean S. Baker and Chris Bergach. I'm not sure if I'm saying that last name right. I apologize, Chris, but uh, he's the co-writer of this movie. It starred... Uh, Kitana Kiki Rodriguez, Maya Taylor, and Karen Karagulian in the three lead roles of the film, mostly unknown actors in this. This is an indie film all the way through, an indie drama that follows a pair of transgender prostitutes on a day in the streets of Los Angeles after one of them discovers that her pimp-slash-boyfriend has cheated on her while she was in jail and she tries to track him down throughout the entire film. The movie's full of life, really, um, and it's it's just it's a it's a lively, very lively movie, and a very lively picture of street Los Angeles. But unfortunately, I found the lead performance of Rodriguez so irritating that I could not really enjoy the film fully. Um, Maya Taylor, though, on the other hand, was outstanding and really saved the film a bit for me, but she wasn't quite enough to take it over the edge into a movie that I loved. I wasn't crazy about Tangerine, and I I probably would not be watching it again if I had the option. But the most interesting part of this film is the realness that comes from it, because Taylor, in real life, is a former sex worker herself. And as I said, both of these women are transgender actors, actresses, and they're playing transgender prostitutes, and there's just a lot, there's a lot of realism that comes from that and that you can feel that they're drawing from. Um, the movie was also shot completely on iPhones. Interestingly, it was shot on iPhone sixes. Um, but it doesn't really look like it was shot on, you know, it's not like a gimmick, like when modern family did it, that you wouldn't know this was shot on iPhones really, unless I told you that it was, or if you read that it was because they used some like very nice inexpensive lenses. I read that they clipped onto the back of the iPhones that really make them look like, you know, very good cameras, and they have good cameras on them anyways, but make them look like professional cameras. Uh, and, and I thought the using the iPhones worked very well in the natural lighting of L.A. that they're using uh, by filming on the streets of L.A. during the day and at night. Uh, I enjoyed the spirit of this movie a lot, but as I said, probably wouldn't watch Tangerine again, and it was not one of my favorite indies, uh, but it is right now playing on Netflix.
Girl, wait, wait, wait. I cannot do this. I cannot do this. It's too much drama. You guys just come out here and give me all this information and have me go handle it by myself? You're the one that me in with. Okay, 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 okay. I will go with you under one condition. You must promise me that there's not going to be any drama. Because as soon as there's some drama, I'm out of there. I promise. I promise. Look at me in my eyes and promise. I promise no drama, Alexandria. Come on. Another one I just finished not very long ago that came out this year was Dope. This one is also available to rent and to own right now. It's not streaming anywhere that I could find. Uh, director and screenplay were uh, both done by Rick Famuyiwa, who has been around for a while. He did a movie that I really enjoyed a lot called The Wood years ago. I wrote about it at OverdueReview.com. Um, and this movie was a lot like The Wood. And it's funny because I didn't realize Rick Famuyiwa directed this one until I was done with it. And I'm like, God, whoever made this, like... They must have loved the wood. Like, they must have watched that movie and, and wrote it and worshipped it. Uh, and turns out, yeah, it was the same guy that wrote and directed it. So it makes sense. Uh, this one starred Shamik Moore, Kiersey Clemens, and Zoe Kravitz, among uh, others in an ensemble cast. This was a really funny teen movie that has a, a broad base of appeal. It'll appeal to hipsters, it'll appeal to street kids, and it'll appeal to anyone, basically, who's ever been an outcast in their life. It follows a trio of nerdy kids at an Inglewood high school who uh, accidentally gets stuck with a load of molly, which, uh, if you're not in the know, it's, uh, it's, it's, very, it's hardcore ecstasy. Uh, and they're basically extorted into selling it. Again, these are teenage kids. They get a big load of molly. They, they've never even done drugs themselves, and they're extorted into selling these drugs. So basically they use their tech acumen, because as I said, they are nerds through and through, to sell the drugs on the dark web for Bitcoin currency. Um, which is, you know, untraceable. The movie finishes at the end with a strong message about being yourself and the many ways uh, in which someone can reach the top in America. The lead character, Malcolm, parlays his experience of selling these drugs combined with his impeccable grades all throughout school into a powerful application letter that he reads at the end to try to get into Harvard. And uh, spoiler alert, he does get into Harvard at the end. Um, It's just it's a cool story. It's a coming of age story that I really don't feel like I have seen before on screen, which is hard to say with these kind of movies because they're all done to death. The lead actors, all really solid in their roles. They were mostly, again, unknowns, the three leads. Um, And they were very believable, very solid supporting performances from Zoe Kravitz, uh, from Blake Anderson, from Comedy Central's um, uh, show Workaholics. Uh, I thought he was really funny in this movie. And also the rapper ASAP Rocky. I know when I mentioned Dope a few months ago on this show, I mentioned that it was coming out. I, I made a joke about how it had ASAP Rocky's debut acting performance and how no one was excited for that. But I got to say, man, I, he was he was good in this role. He he played a gangster character. He played a drug dealer, but he did it well. And I, I actually really enjoyed him in this movie. So that filled the film out, all these supporting performances from, uh, from, from some good actors. I'm disappointed that this movie was not nominated for Best Comedy by the Golden Globes. Because the Golden Globes nominations came out, I didn't even want to get into those on this show because I could talk about them for an hour. But they nominated Trainwreck, Amy Schumer's film, for for Best Comedy of the Year. And yeah, it made a lot of money and it got talked about a lot. But I I reviewed that on this this show and I I told you how. I really didn't think Trainwreck was very good. I didn't think it was particularly original. Um, I thought it was well acted. I thought Amy Schumer was was fantastic in her acting in that movie. But I just did not feel like it was a very good movie and I didn't feel like it was very funny. Uh, this movie was much more funny and much more original. I would have loved to have seen this get nominated for Best Picture in the comedy category um, at the uh, at the Golden Globes because it is a bona fide comedy. Um, but regardless, it wasn't. But it's nominated for Best Comedy of the Year by me, I'll tell you that much. Uh, I give extra kudos for Dope for lining the movie with a great soundtrack as well. It's got 90s rap all throughout it. Uh, songs from everybody from A Tribe Called Quest to Public Enemy, Diggable Planets, uh, Naughty by Nature. It's even got some music by Gil Scott Heron. It's just it's it's a it's a smart movie, as I said, for the outcasts everywhere out there, and especially for the nerds. You don't see a lot of movies that are quote unquote black movies that are dedicated to the nerds, man. I really I liked it. I thought this movie was kind of a lot like um, dear white people. It reminded me like it came from like that same cloth. It was cut from that same cloth, but took place in high school. And I actually liked it better than dear white people. So, uh, dope is right now available to rent known. And if you see it streaming somewhere, give it a watch. If you like these kind of movies, very funny, very good. Did he actually say I'll kill you and your friends if you don't sell these drugs or just you? What? 
Don't act like you weren't curious too. Not directly. He was talking about Amazon and Rick Ross CDs not mm -hmm. getting to their customers. Niggas don't even buy CDs anymore, dog. Jib, that's not the fucking point. Are you gonna go and sell on the corner? Cause we're a bunch of bitches, man. Speak for yourself, Chip. Yes, I am a bitch ass nigga. I don't give a fuck. I own that shit. Who are you trying to impress, Diggy? <laughs> we're talking about Molly, Jib, not fucking heroin. Okay, all we gotta do is find the white people. Go to Coachella. Lollapalooza. Yeah, yeah. We can backpack and hitchhike and sing Mumford and Son songs and all that folk shit. And finally, today on the Stream Police podcast, I'll wrap by sending you out with another movie I saw in theaters that I was enthralled by. Uh, it's the 2015 adaptation of William Shakespeare's Macbeth, simply called Macbeth. It's available uh, now or should be available right now on Amazon Prime streaming if you're a subscriber of Amazon Prime. And it's also in some theaters if you're lucky enough to have a theater near you that is playing it. It was directed by Justin Kurtzell, and the screenplay was written by Jacob Koskoff, Michael Leslie, and Todd Luizzo. It stars two of the uh, big-time heavyweights of our day, Michael Fassbender and Marion Cotillard. Uh, of course, first off, of course, we've got amazing source material. William Shakespeare, Macbeth, his Titus play, and uh, one of his grimmest plays. Also, we've got an ambitious up-and-coming director. Kurtzell is getting ready to do the Assassin's Creed movie adaptation, which I was kind of down on. But now after seeing this, I don't think I'm going to be down on it anymore. And it's also got a dream cast. So really a, a winning combination of ingredients for Macbeth. I really liked this film. Uh, Fassbender does everything well, but he really does psychotic well. And he broods all over this picture in playing the title character Macbeth. And the film the film is just so creepy too. There's so many creepy things in there, images, sounds. Um they really nailed like the dissonance and the this the darkness that is present in Macbeth, I felt like. But this movie really belongs to Marion Cotillard. The more roles that I see her in, the more I'm in awe of her as an actress. My wife has liked her for a long time and has sung her praises for a long time. And I wasn't always on the bandwagon of Marion Cotillard, but I believe me, I am now. I saw her earlier this year in what I thought was a flawless performance in a French movie called Two Days, One Night, which I recommend highly just in passing. If you see that around, you like foreign films. Two Days, One Night was great. She showed in that movie like a ton of raw vulnerability. You felt so bad for her. The entire film. And then I see her in this movie as Lady Macbeth, like maybe the most manipulative character of all time. And she was so magnetic. She just nails every scene she's in in this movie and is reading Shakespeare like it's a second language. The movie looked great also, and it did stay true to the play's original style and vision. This is not what uh, Kersell, as a director, did not try to get cute, which is what a lot of people try to do with Shakespeare. For modern audiences, they try to make it in modern day, try to dress the, the costumes up, maybe change the language a little bit. He doesn't screw with any of that stuff. He doesn't get cute. This is Macbeth through and through. Theater people will like this film. My only complaint about the movie is the sound mixing and the oration of the actors because I felt like it made the dialogue almost impossible to understand and scenes. I'm watching it in theaters, and I just wished I could have turned the subtitles on. As you know, if you listen to the show, I like to watch every movie with subtitles on anyway so I don't miss anything, but here I really needed them. So if you're going to watch this movie on Amazon or on DVD, turn the subtitles on. Do yourself a favor, unless you know Shakespeare like the back of your hand, turn the subtitles on. You'll enjoy it even more. I feel like if you're a Shakespeare purist, you'll like this movie. Give it a spin. You'll give it a seal of approval. And if you're a Shakespeare rookie, which I basically am, I, I'm not a huge I'm not a huge Shakespeare guy, haven't read a ton of him, didn't see, I uh, only saw one of his plays done in person in my lifetime, um, and it was one of the comedies. So if you're a Shakespeare rookie, I feel like this movie can really help you ease into Shakespeare without insulting your intelligence at all. It's a smart film, it's well made, and uh, Macbeth right now is playing on Amazon Prime as well as in theaters. Which of you have done this? What, my good lord? Thou canst not say that I did it! His Highness is not well. Sit. Worthy friends. Pray you keep seat. The fit is momentary, upon a thought he will again be well. If much you note him, you shall offend him and extend his passion. Feed and regard him not. That's going to do it for the Stream Police podcast. I urge you to go over to our website, Overdue Review. Dot com for some long-form looks at uh, maybe some of your favorite records, films, and television shows of, uh, of history. We go all the way back on that website. The only thing we really do not write about are brand-new movies that are right now in theaters. 
It would kind of defeat the name of the website. Uh, thanks for checking out the show this year, friends. Really appreciate it. Spread the word um, and, and give us a five-star review over there at iTunes and just, just tell your friends about it. We don't we don't advertise anywhere. We don't have advertising on the show, so we could use all the help you can get. We do have to pay bills by paying to post the show on SoundCloud and pay uh, our bills for the website. But as I said, we don't advertise anywhere, so we just really appreciate the patronage and we appreciate you spreading the word yourselves. Word of mouth is the most important, uh, most powerful thing that we uh, can use, and, and you guys are, are, are the ones that will provide that. So thank you so much if you've told anybody about the Stream Police podcast. And if you ever want to send feedback, you have suggestions for movies or uh, questions about things, send me an email, theclintdavis at gmail.com, T-H-E, clintdavis at gmail.com. It's been a great 2015, friends. We'll talk to you next year right here on the Stream Police. Be careful until then. The Stream Police Podcast is a production of OverdueReview.com. Since 2013, the staff at Overdue Review have written thoughtful, unpretentious opinions on hundreds of movies, TV shows, and music from every era. Overdue Review, better late. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.